We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. My name is Stuart Richardson. Landscapes of Consciousness will highlight those who fight to protect the land, a sharing of hopeful visions and stories that bring us back to the land, a place that heals and replenishes us in a world that is in rapid transition. My hope is that we come to know we are a single whole with each other and nature, that when we hurt nature, we are hurting ourselves. Yes, we're very privileged to have Mark Hertzgard on the line. He's a leading voice on global warming. He writes for Vanity Fair, The Nation, and L'Expresso. And he's the author of six books. And his latest book is uh, The Wonderful Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years, which I'm enjoying immensely. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. Now, in your book, on the very first page, you dedicate it to your daughter, Kiara, and you quote, who has to live through this. So let's start there. What will future generations have to live through if humanity keeps on its current track, if governments stay in denial, such as our government, I'm embarrassed to say in Canada, seems to have its knuckles on the ground when it comes to global warming? Well, your, your government's no more uh, recalcitrant than ours on that. But, yeah, Kiara is part of what I call Generation Hot, and those are the, about the 2 billion young people around the world under the age of 25 who we now know are going to spend the rest of their lives dealing with the hottest climate in the history of our civilization. And civilization, human civilization, the scientists tell us, goes back about 10, 12,000 years when we first began agriculture on this planet. And in that entire 10 to 12,000 year period, we will have never encountered temperatures, average global temperatures, that we're going to be seeing by the time my daughter is my age. She's now seven. So by the middle of this century, it's going to be hotter on this planet than it ever has been in the last 10,000 years. So that's if we start making some changes pretty quickly. And if we don't do that, if we stay on the current path, it's going to be even hotter. And that is a real recipe for disaster. So we have to make sure we don't stay on this path. My brother has asthma, and I remember when I lived in Ontario how much he suffered. And we talk about, you know, how expensive, you know, adapting and, and mitigating climate changes. So could you speak a little bit to the human cost of, of these changes that are happening to our climate? Sure. We know that climate change is going to have immense uh, human health impacts. In fact, uh, as you know from, from my book, Hot, the opening pages there talk about how the signature event that let us really let the scientists understand that we really are now launched into the climate change era was the heat wave in Europe of 2003, where they had the hottest summer in uh, basically in recorded history. And there were people, and the New York Times ran a story, I remember, talking about how there were so many corpses in Paris that they were literally piling up outside the hospitals and, and then the morgues in Paris. And finally, there's been a, uh, an epidemiological study on this, and they determined that 71,000 people died that summer across Europe, and mainly in France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, uh, but elsewhere as well. 71,000 people. That's more than the U.S. war deaths in the entire Vietnam War. That's what we're talking about here, and that's just one event. There are many, many more that are lying in wait, and this is just, uh, and you mentioned your brother 
having asthma, that's going to be much more difficult uh, to deal with as we go forward because as there's more uh, heat, of course, that also creates difficulties uh, for asthmatics because there'll be a lot more uh, air pollution down at the at the uh, ground level. So there's all different kinds of reasons of why we've got to, to deal with this. I want to pick up on a, a, a couple of things you said because we speak a lot about mitigating climate change and changing our habits, reducing carbon footprints, which is commendable, and I'm really proud of the work that people are doing. But there's a lot of climate changes already in the pipe. Even if we stopped everything today, you talk about in the book of there's inevitable impacts are going to happen even if we mitigate. So can you speak about the need to also have adaption to the impacts are already going to happen? Sure. I mean, that's the terrible thing um, about climate change. I think the most fiendish fact about it is this lag effect. Um, and it's basically just the laws of physics and chemistry. You know, carbon dioxide stays up in the atmosphere for many, many decades, even centuries, parts of it. And so even if we stopped all of our greenhouse gas emissions tonight all around the world, this lag effect would mean that temperatures would continue to go up on this planet for another 30 years, and that's if we started now. So we are definitely going to face a lot of impacts. When I said earlier that uh, my daughter's generation is now locked into spending the rest of their lives coping with the hottest climate in history, that's the reason. It's because of this lag effect, and that's all the more reason why we shouldn't wait any longer. You know, Had we, as a species, as a civilization, had we listened to the scientists who were telling us um, back in the 1980s that this is a problem, we would have been able to perhaps avoid this difficulty. But because we didn't act sooner, now my daughter and the rest of Generation Hot are going to pay the price. And so let's make sure that we don't make them pay an even higher price. It's going to be hard enough to adapt to the impacts that are already inevitable. You know, here in California, where my daughter and I live, we now know we're going to lose most of the snowpack atop the Sierra Nevada mountains that is the main source of fresh water in this state. And, uh, you know, that's it's just going to melt. Again, by the time she's my age, a lot of that snowpack will be gone. So we've really now got to change the way we think about climate change. And, yes, we absolutely have got to shift onto greener forms of energy and uh, non-industrial agriculture and all of those things to sort of turn down the temperature. But at the same time, as you point out, we have to practice adaptation because we've let it go too late and there are going to be impacts. And so we've got to do our best to, to limit those. Now, I'm a communications major and uh, it's my passion. And a lot of people in British Columbia are at the epicenter of the climate struggle because we are fighting courageously and, and many people are raising their voices against an Enbridge pipeline that the government's obsessed with pushing through to our coast at a huge environmental risk. Uh, to bring raw bitumen to the coast and then off to China. And now we're starting to see commercials by Enbridge saying that we can have strong, healthy communities with this investment. So how would you respond to the old argument that we can't really have a strong, healthy economy without putting the environment under some risk? You know, that's what they've been telling us for all these years, and look where it's gotten us. It's gotten us in this current mess. And besides which, it's frankly a lie. Um, we can actually have uh, a very strong economy by moving away from uh, fossil fuels. And, in fact, that's where the smart money 
in the world economy is going. If you look at China or Germany, those two nations have clearly made a very high-level decision at the top of their government and business communities that says, okay, the green economy is the economy that we need to do well in, if not dominate, if we want to be competitive in the 21st century. And so both of those nations, Germany and China, are moving full speed ahead towards uh, developing solar, wind, energy efficiency, and a whole range of other things. I might add also that here in California, um, the uh, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, they too recognize that the green economy is coming and that that's really where you're going to get most of the jobs in the future. I mean, just think about it. Because we didn't deal with climate change earlier, we're now going to have to spend quite a bit of money doing things like building seawalls around our airports. Here in San Francisco, both of our airports uh, are going to be underwater uh, if there's three feet of sea level rise, and we know there will be three feet of sea level rise, uh, certainly by the end of this century, if not um, much sooner. That is an awful lot of money that is going to be wasted um, and not put to as, as productive a use as it might have. So the idea that we need to, to uh, go further down this road of fossil fuel development I think is foolish. You know, the, it's a, I grew up on a farm, and it's a bit of folk wisdom that when you're in a hole, the first thing you do is stop digging. In your book, it shows how the mayor of Seattle uh, has taken some uh, very progressive moves to save millions of dollars of economic loss that, that's potentially there when and the water levels rise. Sure, yeah, you're talking about Ron Sims, I think, who's actually not the mayor of Seattle. He's the county executive of King County, which is, includes Seattle and the surrounding suburbs. And he is, I think, the uh, certainly the most foresightful and uh, far-reaching visionary on these policies in the United States and one of the leaders in the world, really, because he recognizes that if uh, you're going to have a healthy economy in the future, you've got to deal with climate change. And what he does is uh, he says to his staff on the, on the uh, county government, he says, ask the climate question, by which he means ask what conditions will our community be facing in the year 2050? Ask the scientists to do their uh, investigations and figure out, okay, what will the weather be like? What will the temperatures be like? The precipitation, et cetera, et cetera. And then work backwards from that to put in place the policies that are going to be necessary to protect things. So, for example, in Seattle, uh, the government has told the Port of Seattle that they need to raise their piers and other infrastructure by one meter in order to prepare for the amount of sea level rise that's coming. And uh, they've also begun to uh, strengthen the levees along the rivers that, that uh, snake through uh, King County. Why? Well, again, because they know that there's going to be economic problems if they don't. And In fact, if you lose the levees, there's a passage in Hot, I don't know if you've gotten to that part of the book yet, but there's a passage where they talk about how uh, if they were to have floods in this one section of town south of Seattle, it would cost the local economy $46 million a day. Why? Well, because that's where all of the warehouses that supply a little company called Starbucks are located and all of the uh, groceries and medical equipment and so forth, all of that uh, infrastructure is down in that part of the city. And if there are floods, which, of course, is what the scientists are saying, they are going to be in danger of, of losing that. And so 
has begun to invest in improving and strengthening those levies. And they've done this. If you talk to Ron Sims, the county executive, he's not doing this just because he's a humanitarian, although he is. His main emphasis, he says, is that I want King County in the year 2050, and 2030 for that matter, I want it to be a place where businesses are going to want to come and invest. Why? Because we are going to have prepared. We will have levies that work. We will have a skilled green workforce. We will have mass transit that functions. We will still have a water supply, and on and on and on. And there's going to be a lot of places, I'm sad to say, that will not be functioning very well because they're not taking the steps now to, to prepare. It takes a long time to do things like raise your raise the piers by a foot or prepare against uh, uh, water shortages. It takes a long time to do that. And so the time to start is now. Yes, I, absolutely. I read that, and I was I was pretty shocked at the high economic cost, and it's just irresponsible not to do something. Or if you can imagine an airport flooded out and, and not, not having air traffic for two or three days, or, or there's, there's so many examples of a highway floods out, and um, that's absolutely what I was getting at. Now, in your book, um, you speak about how the climate, uh, global warming is so unjust because the people who created most of the carbon are not the ones who will suffer first. And we also interviewed in the past Christian Parenti who wrote about Tropic of Chaos and how climate change is a big factor in global conflict uh, around Africa and, and different regions that are feeling the impacts first. As one of you could talk about how unjust global warming uh, is and, and who it impacts first and, and most fiercely. Sure. Let me just say I'm glad that you uh, uh, highlighted Christian's book. Christian's my colleague at The Nation magazine and an absolutely terrific reporter uh, on this, and that's a very good book for people who haven't heard of it, The Tropic of Chaos. And, yes, of course, it's terribly unjust. The It's not just a question of, of economic injustice, but it's also uh, generational injustice, you know, all the young people who were born into this situation, they didn't ask for that. There's a, a number of different um, issues there. Now, but let me also say that, you know, my parents and my grandparents did not know when they were driving their cars or turning on the electric lights in 1940s and 50s and so forth. They did not know about climate change. They didn't know what they were doing. So, uh, you know, we can't entirely blame them for what happened. But that's no longer the case. We know now. We know perfectly well that uh, putting more of this stuff up into the atmosphere is absolutely depriving our young people of uh, the kind of future that they should have. So there's no longer any excuse. And likewise, we know that doing that in particular deprives poor people around the world because usually they live in the places that are most at risk. They live in the floodplains because they can't afford to live some other place. They live on the hillsides that are going to erode when there's these terrible storms. Um, you know, I went to Bangladesh in my reporting for HOT, and I write about a little girl who was exactly my daughter's age, whose village had just been washed away in one of these record floods. So there is a strong justice component to this, and we really have to... Uh, uh, bear that in mind. It's, it's both a generational one and an economic uh, question of justice. Quite often, um, I don't know if it's happening universally, but the government in British Columbia added carbon 
taxes. Now, I'm not totally opposed to carbon taxes, but what I am opposed to is when they add a tax when people don't have alternatives. For example, many people in the surrounding suburbs don't really have reliable transit they can use, so they're... (laughs) They're just cynical and they're stuck with this tax and there's no alternative. So what we really need is we need choices. People need alternatives so they can make the right choices. But it it seems that no matter how much people, you know, people speak out, uh, there is powerful interest blocking progress, uh, the progress that we really need. So what advice would you give to those progressive or concerned people who want change but they don't see it happening fast enough? Well, change comes uh, because of us. You know, that's what makes change happen. And um, so you can't give up. You know, change doesn't come quick, (laughs) unfortunately. Uh, One thing I would say quickly about the carbon tax, though, partly what needs to happen there, because you're absolutely right, you don't want to be punishing especially uh, the people on the lower end of the economic ladder. The better policy instrument than just a straight tax is what they call um, either tax and dividend or cap and dividend, where you raise the price of anything related to carbon dioxide. So you'd raise the price of heating oil or gasoline or electricity that comes from a coal-fired power plant. All those things would go up in order to to discourage consumption of them. But with those revenues, the government doesn't get to keep those revenues. Those revenues go right back to the public so that the average person uh, will get a monthly check from those higher tax um, costs. And then that person can use that money, as you said before, to make different choices. And that means you can either use it to, uh, you know, buy a more fuel-efficient car or invest in uh, uh, a better efficiency and insulation in your home to lower your energy prices. And the economic studies that have been done of this indicate that for pretty much everybody, except for the top 10% in the income levels, Everybody will actually make money on that deal, not lose it. So I think that's that's probably the better policy instrument to use rather than a straight tax, which I agree is is uh, onerous for especially for poor people. Myself, I'm really inspired by your book about the stories of so many people um, making personal choices and 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 doing collective action like uh, the the politicians, etc. And I wanted to thank you for writing the book. It's, it's thoroughly inspiring. And I wanted to ask uh, where people can get their hands on a copy or many of your other wonderful books. Uh, you've written Odyssey and uh, <laughs> quite a few books. So how can people get their hands on your work? They can um, go to the local bookstore, uh, hopefully an independent bookstore, um, and ask for it. And Hot right now is out in paperback, and it should be pretty widely available because it's distributed by Houghton Mifflin. Uh, publishing company. Okay, well, thank you so much for promoting independent bookstores, and there's quite a few in Vancouver, and I encourage always go to the independent bookstore first, and thank you uh, once again, Mark, for your wonderful work. I'm so glad to hear that. Well, thank you very much for having me on, and uh, anybody who wants to get in touch, come to the Facebook page for Generation Hot, and we will engage you in our work, because we've all got a lot of work to do. Thanks again. Okay, thank you. You have been listening to Conscious Landscapes. To hear previous episodes, to find out about forest bathing, or come on a journey on purpose with us, please visit eco-awakening.com. Bye for now.